This is Ryan Evans here for a very special edition of the War on the Rocks podcast series. I'm here with Sean Kay of Ohio Wesleyan University uh, and an associate of the Mershon Center at Ohio State. And uh, he's here in D.C. visiting from outside of the Beltway to uh, talk about his new book and uh, foreign policy in general. So, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book? When is it coming out? Uh, it's out now, uh, which is great, and uh, it's great to be back in Washington. I, I come in peace uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, from the heartland, which is always a good perspective, I think, to bring from, from places like Ohio, uh, which tend to matter a lot up until the day of elections and then disappear very quickly. Um, yeah, I've done a new book. It's called America's Search for Security, The Triumph of Idealism and the Return of Realism. And uh, it's something I've worked on over the last two years, uh, but draws on a lot of uh, other work I've done over time. And it's basically a new look at this old tension in American foreign policy between our sense of ideals, um, our commitment to democracy and individual liberty, commerce and trade, and our national interests and how the two work together. And the book uh, goes through the origins of the nation uh, through up until the end of the Cold War, uh, looks at um, the post-Cold War period, and demonstrates with a lot of detail that since about 1994, the United States has been um, largely governed in its foreign policy by a loose consensus of sort of liberal liberal interventionists and neoconservatives um, on the left and the right. And that runs up against uh, sort of a new triumphalist sort of commitment to idealism built upon American primacy in the world and uh, has led to uh, um, some significant overstretch and crises, uh, for example, in Iraq. All right. Well, how did you get to this point? I mean, how did you, you I know you consider yourself a foreign policy realist, um, but you're not, you know, you're, you're sort of hemming and hawing there a bit. <laughs> well, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about how your foreign policy views came to be, because you're not just a career academic, you actually used to work in government. And, uh, yeah. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? Well, I get, you know, what happened was I, I, um, I started out uh, writing my doctoral dissertation on, on NATO and testing uh, sort of liberal institutionalist theory versus realism, um, sort of classically defined uh, with regard to NATO and how it works. And, uh, and you know, I found that realism, I, I don't really identify as a realist per se, but I think realism is a really important tool to have at the table to challenge um, sort of assumptions about the nature of cooperation and, and the ideals that we want to promote in the world. And so, uh, as I as I tested that on NATO, I found that a lot of the um, core things that, about NATO, for example, that made it work as an organization, was the exercise of American power within it. And um, and yet, over time, that had become very structurally locked in. So it became very hard, for example, to uh, get burden sharing, for example, among allies. And that's a structural legacy of both the Cold War and the post Cold War period that we're still left with today. So the, um, but, but realism I see as, as more of a tool to challenge assumptions, um, not necessarily as a dogmatic sort of guide you know, for, for policy, but I think what happens is when either our big picture ideals or our realism gets, when, when either one gets ahead of the other, we tend to really lose focus and get into trouble, whether it be uh, Vietnam or Iraq. You know? So and or maybe the surge in Afghanistan in 2009 as well. 
uh, the war in Libya, etc. I mean, if 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 if, if if we're not there to challenge the assumptions before we get into major things like wars by asking very hard questions about the national interests and consequences of our actions, uh, we run the risk of, again, substantial overstretch abroad and underinvestment in the domestic foundations of our power at home. And so that's sort of the loggerheads I think we're at right now in the world as we confront a wide range of, um, of, of, of challenges. And, and so realism tells us that we have to think about where is the power in the world, um, how do we align our values and our interests? Uh, that restraint and the use of force is often more powerful than actually using it sometimes. Um, that we want to ask hard cost benefit questions about uh, potential policies that we would engage in. Um, and that we want to also lead the world by setting the best example we can here at home. Um, and of late, we're not doing a very good job on that. What did you uh, do after you finished your doctoral studies? I went to work in the, I uh, did my PhD at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and did, um, uh, went right from there into uh, the Defense Department. I was really lucky to get a position. I had worked in Brussels. At, and what year was this? This was in 1997, 96, 97. And, and I had worked before my PhD in, in uh, the NATO parliamentary organization right at the end of the Cold War, so that was really exciting. I had a lot of great you know, empirical experience working with people from Eastern Europe, from Russia, etc., uh, out of NATO, and, and, um, and that was a great time to be there. And uh, took my doctoral dissertation and, and was lucky to get offered a position in the Defense Department to kind of help with the first round of NATO enlargement, the Balkans issues, NATO-Russia policy. Uh, spent a good amount of time over at the State Department working on, um, on the NATO enlargement issues and the interagency process, uh, uh, U.S. Senate ratification efforts, and, and so on. And I, I was all set to stay and very happy to stay in Washington. But I was offered a one-year teaching job at Dartmouth College, and I thought... I think I'll, I'll take that. And I, I've sort of stuck with academics ever since. NATO enlargement is a topic that uh, is coming up a lot now, both as some people, uh, even some would say despite the crisis ongoing in Ukraine right now, still pushing NATO enlargement even now, uh, focusing mainly on Ukraine and Georgia. Mm-hmm. But also a lot of people are debating whether or not NATO enlargement was a key precursor, mm-hmm. uh, some might even say driver of the ongoing conflict and crisis in Ukraine right now. How would you, how do you see that? Well, I think the policy began actually with quite realist assumptions and they were reasonable, which was that you had a united Germany rising in the middle of Europe and declining Russia, and so stabilizing that region between those countries, particularly Poland, uh, had a geographic and geopolitical logic to it. But imprinted on top of that was this sort of liberal idealist democracy-building exercise. And, and so NATO quickly got kind of transformed into a quasi-new political organization, almost akin more to the League of Nations, than a hard security alliance. And many of us at the time tried to point out that if we tried to, you know, really, in the midst of a crisis, um, uh, boost up the collective defense part of NATO, it could make the crisis even more dangerous, actually, because we hadn't done it in advance. Uh, so, um, but a lot of effort went into uh, bringing Russia in, and that first round went pretty well. And the Russians accommodated themselves to the second round. So I think it's possible to say that the advocates of this were proven right on the first rounds of enlargement. 
Um, but it did start to instill a very deep sort of um, Russian response, uh, you know, classic Russian. It didn't, didn't take a lot of knowledge of Russian history to know that they have this deep-seated fear of encirclement. Uh, they like buffer zones and things like that. And where we really tipped over was in 2008 when NATO made a statement um, that promised future membership for Ukraine and Georgia. And that's that did contribute, I believe, to, a, and I think the evidence is really clear on this, to a series of events from the war in Georgia to pro-Putin people consolidating their position in Ukraine. Um, and to and it, it sort of fed into this narrative that Putin was using for his own political power. But it wasn't just NATO. It was the Libya war. It was missile defense and a wide range of other sort of um, things that you know, fed right into to Putin, but, but had already become deeply ingrained in Russia at the same time. I mean, Yeltsin and his very liberal foreign, foreign, um, uh, foreign minister, Andrei Kozarev, warned us back in 1994 of, that this would have deep, deep consequences within Russia uh, over a long period of time. And so, you know, I think one way to put it is that, you know, we've been doing things very earnestly and trying to consolidate and build democracy and promote freedom and so forth, but doing it through with a military organization that has gone right up into the backyard of a weak and uh, um, sort of uh, isolated nationalist nation with nuclear weapons and doing that in a way that we would never tolerate for a minute another country doing in our own backyard. Do you Can you imagine a world where... Uh, Putin would still be conducting this gradual invasion of Ukraine. Putin still would have gone to war. Uh, Russia still would have gone to war against Georgia. Uh, and could you, if the United States had not been so bullish about NATO expansion, if that 2008 statement had not been made? Well, hmm. That's a, well, it's hard to know. It's really hard to know. Or 2006, that's a, rather. Wasn't yeah, that's, uh, 2008 was the declaration on Ukraine and Georgia. But... Um, it's hard to know that. I mean, on the other hand, because, you know, a lot of people argued, I think, with a, a reasonable argument that, you know, by pushing NATO further east, you know, we were challenging Russia to decide, you know, does it want to be part of the West or does it want to be something else? I, I think I'd answer that a little bit differently in the sense that Putin is responsible for Russia's actions now. Um, and... But, but we have for a long time been telling Russia how they should define their interests largely as we think they should define their interests with regard to NATO enlargement or, or other issues. And that's been a blind spot for us because you know one thing that realism does challenge us to remember is that it doesn't really matter what we say about what other countries think their interests are. What matters is what they think their interests are. And, and we can disagree with that and, and so forth. But if we fail to understand that Russia is going to define its interests as they see fit, and we don't calculate our own policies based on that, and we're running up this sort of idealistic um, you know, um, institution building uh, without serious military uh, commitments going behind it, um, then, then that's not something that we should be surprised about if it creates a crisis, but it's a dangerous one because, again, we're doing this right up in the backyard of, of a nuclear power. Uh, and we thought we could kind of just do that benignly for a long time and there wouldn't be a real backlash. One of the biggest crises, I would say it's a crisis at least, in NATO is the issue of burden sharing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a recommendation, NATO recommendation, that member states spend 2% or more of their GDP on defense. Mm -hmm. um, one, do you think that's the right standard? And two, measured in the right way? And two, do you think that's a realistic expectation? No, I don't think either is, is right. Um, I think still to this day the... Uh, 
one of the founding missions of NATO was to help Western Europe get back on its feet so they could be responsible for their own security. George Kennan argued that at the time, and, and so did, it was an assumption. And, and didn't the Dulles brothers at least was an effort even argue a Europe for a European army? Yeah, in the 1950s, although we actually were the ones that ended up scuttling that in the end. We've, we've wanted to maintain our dominance and our primacy in Europe and lecture them to spend more and do more at the same time. And, and the two are hard to reconcile, actually. And it became harder after the Cold War because there's no external threat. But we couldn't get burden sharing even when there was this major Soviet threat. You know, we on average spent 6% of our GDP and they spent about 3%. Um, and that's just gone down steadily with the end of the Cold War. And, and yet, as that's gone down, NATO's ambitions and operations for out of area... Uh, got busier and busier and busier, and there's this basic disconnect between, again, our idealist visions and the reality underground of what was going on. And so, um, so no, the biggest the biggest crisis. There's an existential crisis in Europe today. It continues to be the eurozone crisis. That, that, that that's a deep underlying structural problem. Um, that could create continued significant instability still for a very long period of time. And so the European allies are in no position to spend more on defense, but they already spend a lot. Uh, they don't get a lot of capabilities for what they spend. So what we need to be doing is changing the incentives for them to get them to uh, better pool their resources so that they can project power. And I actually think this recent NATO summit, which creates this... Uh, special reaction force for Eastern Europe is a good model to build on because it ostensibly, at least so far as what they've said, is it would be British-led with other European allies integrated into it, and it need not have the United States. Uh, that doesn't mean America's not part of NATO or, or it's not there, but it does mean America has to choose priorities in the world, and if you've got a group of allies that are highly capable, that can pool their resources, can create defense industries, um, there's no reason why the United States should be subsidizing their security, uh, we need to have balance in that relationship to make it durable and sustainable uh, for the long haul. You've been a, a big advocate, I would say, of the Asia pivot, later retermed the Asia rebalance. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think that's going, given that most of the world's focus seems to be on crises in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Well, I, I don't think one needs to be an advocate of the pivot. I think the structural realities, again, realism tells us that the, the power in the world is shifting towards Asia. You measure it in economic terms, potential for serious international crises that could have massive economic um, uh, disruptions. Uh, Asia is the place that requires the number one priority. I think the pivot was always misunderstood. It was like you know, we're leaving other places and just going to Asia. But when it was actually announced, uh, if people really look carefully, it was that as we cut spending in other regions and as we leave Afghanistan and Iraq, we will hold spending steady on defense in, in the Asia region and we'll double down on diplomacy and trade. Um, the military part's gone reasonably well. It's sort of a hedge against future uh, Chinese power, which again makes sense. You want to want to overplay the military part because that could also back China into feeling like they're you know in, in uh, being encircled and they might take more aggressive action. So that part has been reasonably well done. But the other part was to build you know manageable norms and cooperation in the region, and that requires sustained diplomacy. So the, the, this is the dilemma of the pivot, I would say, which is that the pivot requires establishing priorities. And realism also says, you know, when you have limited resources, you can't be the world's policeman. You've got to choose priorities. 
many people said we're abandoning or it's retreat from these other regions, but that was never the case. It was about, you know, Asia will be the structurally most important region. The Persian Gulf is a significant uh, runner-up in that because of oil. And Europe remains a, a third area of important interest. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's about how do you realign our relationship in Europe? How do we be careful about the Middle East so as to not get sucked into unnecessary wars, um, and, but continue to promote stability there while we move um, and realign towards Asia, which is, again, um, uh, an inevitable outcome that any administration will have to do, I believe, given the structure of power in the world. But there has always been a fourth element to that, too, to my mind which is that you also have to um, invest in the domestic foundations of American power and competitiveness uh, in ways that people like Dwight Eisenhower did in the 1950s after Sputnik by investing in education, language skills, um, you know, modern technologies that became things like the Internet. You know, if we want to maintain a competitiveness with China, for example, we have to invest in our own human capital. And, and so far, the biggest constraint to establishing these kind of priorities is the domestic situation here in Washington, D.C. And, and again, I think that's a consequence of 20 years of deeply embedded previous existing priorities. So somebody says, now we're going to choose a different hierarchy of priorities, and those people that have been deeply involved, very understandably, think, well, wait a minute, what does that do for my priority? Right? Yeah. And so it's very hard to plan. And if, we, if the United States can't plan and make serious strategic choices... Um, that's going to be our Achilles heel as we go into this new century. So, um, before we launch into our sort of last, last substantive line of questioning, we always talk about what we're drinking here, War on the Rocks podcast. Uh, Sean and I are both enjoying a flying dog. Uh, <laughs> never had lager, it before. Old scratch. What do you think? I've never had it. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't have fat tire, so this was a good uh, substitute. Yeah, we're here at the, as, as we usually are, at the Jefferson Hotel Cool Bar, uh, having a little midday drink before Sean gives a major major speech in front I've of our audience. I've had half a drink, so it's <laughs> okay. I've got time. Um, so, the last thing I want to I want to sort of get at is a series of inner interlocking questions. One, and these are old questions that have been asked a lot but never answered satisfactorily in a, in a satisfactory way, in my opinion. One is, is President Obama a realist? <laughs> Has he pursued a realist foreign policy? Hmm. Um, to what extent do constraints exist on a president's ability to, to choose what foreign policy they actually pursue? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, just to sort of kick you off a bit, I think that historians, political scientists, the American people consistently underestimate the constraints that a president has, even in pursuing the foreign policy that he wants to pursue. And, you know, you can look back at uh, Nixon and Kissinger, which is sort of held up as the ultimate uh, realist team, but realizing how much they were undermined in the arms control policy they wanted to pursue, for example, during their administration, um, by people who later came to power as neoconservatives mm-hmm. um, like Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, um, uh, his former ally, Senator Scoop Jackson. Um, so, so I think these constraints are important to understand. Paul Saunders, my old boss at the Center for National Interest, recently wrote a column in the National Interest where he uh, said that Obama was not a realist, he was a pragmatist, and a tactical pragmatist with no overall vision. So I've right. thrown a lot out there. Mm-hmm. What do you think about all of that? Well, I wrote a piece myself a couple summers ago as a guest uh, writer at Steve Waltz 
column on foreign policy, and it was uh, titled, Can Obama Be a Realist Even If He Wants to Be uh, a Realist? And, uh, and it was really about those sort of internal constraints. Uh, but, you know, he, he himself, uh, you know, got elected on a mandate not just to end the war in Iraq, but change the mindset that got us into the war in the first place. And, of course, much of that mindset was coming from that sort of loose consensus of liberal interventionists like Hillary Clinton and neoconservatives on the right. And um, he, uh, he promised to change that mindset. But then he appointed a foreign policy team that was all pro-invading Iraq when they had a chance to make a, a choice on that. And so nothing really changed in that regard. I mean, so Washington kind of carried on. In a sense, in foreign policy, we saw the third Clinton administration. Um, and, um, and, and with this new term, I think we see some balancing of appointments with people like Chuck Hagel, for example. But, um, but still, you know, very, very strong, impulsive, understandably so, given their commitment to... Um, Excuse me. Excuse me. Um, commitment to various ideals, like Samantha Power at the UN. I mean, she's a very diehard, idealistic interventionist, and so people matter in that regard. Um, but, but what's interesting to me is you get better outcomes. So Richard Nixon went to China. Now that might have been motivated by ending the Vietnam War, but it opened the door to China. We engaged our adversaries. We talked to them. We listened to them. That helped unravel much of the power structures of the Cold War. Uh, you, you know, interestingly enough, they were under all that pressure at the Helsinki Accords to add human rights language. So Henry Kissinger actually writes in human rights language into the Helsinki Accords. That ends up becoming much of the grassroots, bottom-up. Um, wasn't he pressured into doing yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it wasn't his preference, but but it was there, and it had an impact. I mean, it, it helped contribute to natural grassroots revolutions in Eastern Europe as opposed to regime change that imposes things from the outside. Um, so, you know, Obama, you know, in, in, in my experience, I was a member of his uh, informal group of foreign policy advisors working on NATO policy when he first ran for president. And it sure seemed to me at the time that his basic instincts were fundamentally certainly pragmatist, if not realist. I mean, and, and so, for example, when Russia invaded Georgia, you know, the, the talking point that came out, I think over the opposition of a lot of advisors, was, uh, you know, we want to get good information. We don't want to rush into something. We, we don't want a new president that would shoot from the hip. You know, we, we want to be measured and think things through before we act. And, you know, I realize that the president was criticized recently for saying, in effect, the same thing over ISIS, but what's the option? You know, just to rush in and hope it works out? You know, I mean... And li listeners, you'll be listening to this. The president's giving his major speech tonight. This will be published tomorrow morning, so we don't know what he's going to say yet. Well, but 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 we do know, and I, I actually think that, that what, what he's likely to say and is trying to do is consistent with that pragmatism in any event that is much more aligned with sort of the first President Bush or Dwight D. Eisenhower or even Ronald Reagan in that sense. I know that's probably sacrilegious to some listeners, but Reagan was was pragmatic. You know, he he became more pragmatic well, all the time. Yeah, but even by 1983, he was looking at things. I write about this in the book, like uh, this big NATO nuclear exercise. It really worried him how how alarmed the Russians were about what we were doing, and he thought, you know, maybe we need to reach out to them. And and um, and when he had the chance, he acted with restraint. You know. And, for a good six years, you know, the Reagan and Bush administrations very skillfully managed the end of the Cold War working with the Soviet Union. It was only in 1994 when we started to unravel that 
with things like the enlargement of NATO, for good or ill, but that did have its consequences. The point being that um, any president comes in, you know, you mentioned Nixon and, and Kissinger. You know, Jimmy Carter came in as a full-born idealist, but there are all these Kissinger appointments in government then, so how could he get his vision through at the same time? But by the time he leaves office, he's basically back into Cold War realism after yeah. the Soviets invade Afghanistan. But the thing that was really crucial about that links, I think, Eisenhower and Jimmy Carter and 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 uh, and, and and maybe Obama, but is is that they also understand that the domestic foundations of American power are what give us the capacity to be a global leader. The place where he's, I think, failed the most, and President Obama has been to find ways, as tough as it is with Congress, to to really get back to that what used to be a conservative ideal uh, that you sometimes have to spend money to make money. You have to invest in infrastructure and human capital. And, and instead, we're you know, saddling generations of students with debt and making it very, very difficult to get ahead in this country. Um, we've lost that kind of... Um, equal opportunity focus you know to really bring out the most crucial tool of our power which is which is our people and um and so the best foreign policy, as Eisenhower argued, has to go through the hearts and minds of those people, and and they need to be part of it. And that's why Congress has to play a much greater role, and that's why I think the president, you know, he may have had good instincts, but he's done, ironically, given his campaign skills, a very poor job of, uh, of, of, of expressing them and explaining them and building buy-in for a durable uh, foreign policy approach that focuses on priorities and helps build a good, strong America for the future. Um, and that's in uh, lacking. I can understand given opposition in Congress and whatnot, but but that's not an excuse not to really you know go straight to the American public and build a new consensus on America's role in the world. So it starts to look instead like we want to be both. You know, we want to be sort of liberal and forward leaning in our foreign policy, and we want to be pragmatic and realist at the same time. And that's okay because when the two are at the table, they work well together. But on the other hand, it, if it's not articulated effectively, it can look. Um, confusing to the average voter. Yeah, and I think it can look confusing to people abroad, too, when we go up, out and we say we're for freedom and democracy. Right. And then we do things that, uh, I'm not going to say that run counter to freedom and democracy, but support allies that are dictators or um, not intervene. And I'm not advocating intervention, but I think that if we are going to be a realist power, we need to ease up the gas a bit on the arching rhetoric abroad. Because if we're ca- if we're writing checks, we're not planning on you know well, people that's being right. able to cash. And, and and you know we have also had this idea that we could run this kind of world policeman um, situation. Um, as if it didn't cost anything. We right. haven't asked people to raise their taxes. We haven't cut other programs to do it. It's all been just put on a credit card and uh, passed on to future generations to pay for. And that's that's not moral. It's also not moral in terms of foreign policy to um, to um, suggest that we will be something in the world, but we're really not going to be doing it. Like it's not it's not right to suggest to Ukraine that we may be there for them uh, if we're not really going to do it. And if we're really going to be there for Ukraine, then that means tens of billions of dollars of, of money to help rebuild their economy. And I don't see people lining up to write those checks. Well, and that's that's what I think the president's fundamental failing in his Syria policy has been. I actually uh, still stand by the policy choice of not of not not intervening militarily in that conflict. Oh, yeah. but, but given the president has said Assad must go and then drew a red line 
that he later was willing to ignore, maybe for the right reasons, but he shouldn't have drawn the line in the right in the first place. And then he decided yeah. to give small arms and tow missiles to the rebels that aren't going to turn the tide of the conflict, but will make right. more people die. Well, uh, people, this idea that that um, I mean, here's this is again, this is a case where realism helps explain things at least, but. You know, the fact that we didn't go to war over a redline comment, the mistake was the redline comment, not, not right. going to war. And, and you know, we got a better outcome. Remember what that war was going to be for. It was to punish them on chemical weapons. Um, but the American public put their foot down and said no. Uh, the British said no. Um, it was clearly that, you know, not a well-thought-through campaign. It was not going to have an effect on the Assad regime or the rebels. But through diplomacy, through engagement... We end up with um, better policy outcome that you know through UN inspectors who actually can be very effective. But diplomacy was what mattered there, not force. And and the crucial part of that though is that Assad becomes the virtual crossroads of this tension between these liberal idealistic values and um, and realism. Because who is it that's going to implement this accord on chemical weapons but Assad? And who is it that you actually need to crack down on ISIS? likely Assad, and we actually have an official policy that he also should be overthrown. And those are two very different um, scenarios that will be very difficult to square um, for the administration in the coming years, especially as we start to look like we're going to get dragged further and further into a conflict on the ground uh, in Syria. Well, I think that's an optimistic note to end on. Uh, you should all buy Sean's new book, America's Search for Security, The Triumph of Idealism and the return of realism published by Roman and Littlefield uh, thanks so much for doing this Sean yeah very good and thanks for all you're doing with War on the Rocks it's a great it's a great uh, publication I read it every day and I hope uh, as many people see it as com- can well thanks for being a part of it